don't one of you guys, in the middle of all that applause, let's see how it works. In the middle of all that applause, one of you guys holler, Take it off, baby! Let's try it again. Isn't it terrible that in our day and age you have to rehearse sin? You know, it's it just... Uh, it, oh, speaking of sin. Now, wait. Now, hold on a minute. Listen to this story. Listen to this. This is from the New York Times. Now, all of you know that the New York Times... This is not a paper that fools around. The New York Times... Hey, at ease now. Let's stop all the argument. We're back on the air. Let's go, Mel. Quiet them down out there. Okay. What's that, honey? <laughs> He'll be back. It's all right. <laughs> all of a sudden, 28 states hear her holler, Give me a Bloody Mary and a Boilermaker! <laughs> and her mother hears her. <laughs> Listen, this is from the New York Times. Now, all of you know that this is probably the most official newspaper in America. They, they print only the news that's fit to print. How's that for a snotty line? <laughs> I mean, the word, the key word is fit. Can't you see this fitness editor there? He says it's not fit at all, you know. <laughs> he threw the whole village out last week, you know. Listen to this one now. Now, listen to this story from the Times. Denver, Colorado. Now, have you ever been to Denver? Okay. Denver is way out there. It's in the beginnings of the American West. And the skies are big. And those mountains lay over there. I mean, this is purity itself, Denver. I mean, it's just laying out there in Colorado, and this is the country where the Indians roamed. And this is not far from where Custer met his last moments. It's Denver. See, this is pure America. Denver, Colorado. A ten-year-old boy... Now, listen to this. Shh. Okay, ready? A ten-year-old boy admitted to police... Monday, that he poured gasoline on the back of his trousers and lit it with a match in an attempt, quote, to take off like a rocket. <laughs> that is a great moment in kiddom. <laughs> it goes on to say, it says that, uh, he says that he had been looking at pictures of rockets he had seen missiles taking off on television and could not understand why he couldn't do it. What a moment. Can't you see this kid? He's in the backyard, you know, with his corduroy knickers on. And he's standing there, you know, he's waiting. And he's counting down, you know. After all, he's seen Walter Cronkite, you know. He's counting down nine, eight, seven, six, five, four. He's looking up there at Venus. Five, three, two, one. He takes his zip out. Pow! And he waits. Ah. You know, I heard that. And I thought, holy smokes, what a great moment in kiddom. And you know, that reminds me every time. How many of you have got awful memories? Or maybe even nostalgic memories? Or possibly even uh, neurotic memories? of gasoline. You know that, that doctors are continually running into this thing. Kids love to sniff gasoline. Yeah, they like to smell it, you know, just gasoline. 
It's got something in it, see? Well, I'm about 11 or 12 years old, and it was a kid in the neighborhood who was about two years older than me. Stryker. Big old Lawrence Stryker. You know, there's always one kid that you walk behind. You know, you trot behind him, see? And he's the big kid. You know, at, at, eventually you will have your little satellites. Do any of you remember your satellites? I don't know whether girls go through this, but this is a male thing. And Lawrence Stryker, he was the nay plus ultra of the kids of our neighborhood. He was a, first of all, he had money. He was the kind of kid, you know, with the chino slacks. You know, he had the three-tone belt with the brass buckle, had the white shirt with the button down. He had the sport jacket. All the rest of us are flubbing around, you know, and we had jeans and stuff like that. Lawrence Stryker was the kid that I remember in connection with proms, girls, and cars. And he had this car, see. Well, one night, Lawrence comes to me. We're sitting on the front porch. He's, he's probably 16, see. I'm maybe 14. He says, how'd you like to go out scragging tonight? You know the word scragging? Well, the word scragging is getting into a car and just drive. It's sort of a, sort of a mobile uh, Marty. You remember Marty? It's sort of a mobile Marty. There's one right there. It's a sort of mobile Marty. We would get in the car and we would drive around streets and just look out at girls. You know, you sit in the back seat. There's eight kids in the car. You drive along. You see girls. You see them walking along the streets. See, it's dark. And you, you, you slow up and you holler, Hey, baby! Hey! Woo! Woo! Hey, baby! Wow, wow! Oh, wow, wow, wow! And the girls just keep going. <laughs> then we drive on. Hey, baby! Wow, woo! Then we go around the block, see? <laughs> we come back the other way. Hey, baby! Hey, how much? How'd you like to go for a ride? Woo! And they keep walking, see? That's called scragging. Yeah, that's a Midwestern word. Probably right there. Now, this very minute, there are six million guys in old cars who are doing it right now. And this show is coming out of their, coming out of their car radio. Good luck, guys. Good hunting tonight. But to a pure scragger, remember this, it is not, it is not, it is not the actual achievement of the goal. It is the chase. There is never any known moment of a scragger catching up with a scrag. It's all purely, you know, it's all the carries. It's all hollering out the window. Hey, baby, baby. Step on it, flick. Hey, baby. You know, that whole bit's yelling and hollering. So, so Stryker comes up to me that night and he says, how about let's going scragging? I said, gee, I was going to be admitted to one of the big kids' sports, you know. Up to that time, a big afternoon for me was, uh, oh, knocking out flies, playing catch. Once in a great while, I would see Esther Jane Alberry at the end of the block, and I may holler just a little one, hey, baby, and then I turned. <laughs> and she'd look around, and I'd say, not me, you know. I'm just walking around, you know. Well. Here we, here we are, see, I'm about to be admitted to the masculine pursuit of scrags. 
You know, I figured, gee, he's forgot I'm 14, see? So we're sitting there. This was the first time, by the way, I have ever been used as a patsy. You know what is it, a patsy? Well, probably a lot of you have been used as a patsy in the office many times and didn't know it. A patsy is the guy that gets hell. The other guy is the guy that uses you to get hell. He gets away with the swag. You see, that's the patsy. And I'm sitting there. And he says, how about going scraggy tonight? I say, yeah. Beat. Pause. He says, too bad I ain't got no gas for the car. No gas for the car? He says, nope, no gas for the car. We could go scragging. He says, you know, there's one way we can get gas. I said, how? He says, well, after it gets dark, we could go out and siphon some gas. How many guys in this crowd have ever siphoned gasoline? Now, wait a minute. Don't just raise your hand. I'm talking about in anger, in action. In other words, you're siphoning gas to make a car go, and not just because your dad says, here, run it from this. It's a magical thing. You know what siphoning works like? It's fantastic. You take a little hose, see? I'll show you how you do it. You put it into the gas tank. It's fantastic. And you got a ball jar, see? Or maybe you got a one-gallon jug, see, and you hold this, and you lay down next to the car, and you're pretending you're in Airedale. <laughs> see, so if anybody looks out, they just think it's a dog there, see? Actually, it's you back there by the gas tank, see? And then you go, and you can feel the gas coming up, see, just like a great big straw sucking up a soda, see? And at the precise moment, you go, boom, down into the jug, and it comes out. All the gas comes right out of the thing. It's magic. Well, I am out siphoning gas, and I'm about to perpetrate my first crime. My first one. Now, I think that the thing that separates criminals from the rest of us is that they, on their first one, made it. <laughs> you know, that, that can be a, a lifelong habit, see? So me and Stryker go down the street, and it's a beautiful, warm summer night. And I've got a pail. And we're pretending like, you know, we've been out picking mushrooms or something. See, we're walking along. And Stryker says, look, old man Anderson's Pontiac has got a screw cap. That is a snap. You work his Pontiac, I'll go down and take Mrs. Forsythe's Dodge. So the two of us fan out. It's dark. And remember what I'm being driven by. Scrags. I'm being driven by the image of girls with soft printed dresses. And I will be shouting out of the back seat of Stryker's Oldsmobile. I'm creeping along. I now arrive next to Mr. Anderson's Pontiac. Mr. Anderson, who for years has given me a half a dollar every Saturday when I cut his grass. My benefactor, Mr. Anderson, who had a daughter named Dorothy, who was later to be the girl I would take to the prom and have a total disaster with. But that was ahead, see, it was all like our town. And now I am down next to Mr. Anderson's Pontiac. I take the school cap off, and all of a sudden I hear their dogs start to yell. 
they had this dog. Now, he was an old friend of mine, a dog named John. <laughs> it's the kind of family it was. I'm sorry. And all of a sudden, John goes, oop, oop, oop. That's John. Shut up. Come on, it's me. Oop, oop, oop. Uh, shut up, John. And I've got a hose in my mouth, see. And I go, nothing. Nothing. All I hear in the tank, it goes, boom, boom, boom. You know, boom, boom, boom. Oh, oh, shut up, John. And across the street, Lawrence Stryker already has five gallons. You know, I can just hear it. It's going all over the street. He says, hurry up. Come on, let's go. For and I'm go. I says, it won't come. He says, well, suck it. I say, okay. Oh! I got a gallon and a half of Phillips 66. I am telling you, it was with the lead, the high test, the whole bit. It went all the way down to my pancreas. I mean, you know, it's so funny. You know, when you watch them pour gas into a car, it looks so healthy, doesn't it? My car's eating, you know. Oh, yeah, it goes ding, 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 ding. All of a sudden, it goes ding, ding, three gallons. Oh! And, oh, boy, I'll tell you, my eyeballs popped out. And I could hear, I could hear Stryker take off. He knew what had happened, you know. He could smell the human torch already. And it, 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 uh, all of us, all of us, in all of our lives, we have had terrible moments of the stomach type. Well, I've often felt that in case of extreme problems, I mean, when X-Lax doesn't do it, when Sal Hepatica fails, when Alka-Seltzer doesn't achieve it, just take about a gallon and a half of Phillips 66, put a little bitters in it maybe, maybe a little squeeze of lemon, you know, and try that on for size. I am lying flat out. And, and you know, the funny thing about it, I didn't know that I had a motor in me. It started. And it's coming up in giant gasps, and all of a sudden the door slams open on the porch, and there is Mr. Anderson, my friend. I'm lying out there next to the Pontiac. He says, What's out there? Who's out there? And John is hollering, Shepherd, Bob, Bob, Shepherd. My friend, he's drinking your gas, Bob, Bob. Well, somewhere out there right now, I'm sure, listening tonight, there is a kid who is about to take that, that fatal step. Somewhere into that darkness of borderline criminality. Well, you know these fatal moments, these instances. How many of you remember, and I'm going to have to go back to the original theme, because it's connected with that fatal first moment. How many of you ever feel that sense? That somehow other people are living the real life and you're just sort of flubbing around in the bushes see how many of you have the feeling one day your life is going to begin 
And up to now, you're ad-libbing. One day it's going to happen. It's all beginning. And you'd go past our high school. We had 3,000 kids all jammed in there together. Half of them were from families, you know, where the guys worked in the steel mills and other guys worked in the roundhouse. And there's always one little fine, thin layer of kids in every high school. The kids that make it. You know what I mean by the kids that make it? They're the kids that edit the literary journal. You're the kid that buys it. It's a world of difference, I'll tell you. Then there's the kids that write for the school paper. And all you do is get it once a week. Somebody lays it on your desk and you read about it. Then there's the kids that are on the debating team. Then there's the kids that are the prom queen. The kids that are on the program committee. It's always the same kids. Kids named Audrey. Barbara. We had a girl named Dolores Smith. She ran the school. She was a dictator. Oh, yeah. I mean, she had a fantastic figure, everything, you know. And she was prom queen. She was junior prom queen. She was the head of the sophomore debating class. She operated the biology club her own way. <laughs> so it was announced that Dolores Smith was going to be the prom queen, of course, of our prom. It was just accepted, you know. And all the rest of us were privileged to come and see Dolores, the prom queen. Now, now you know, you know remember, remember when you were a, a senior and you were just beginning to finish your high school and you had this feeling of being really important? You'd walk through the classrooms. It's May. Oh, boy, there must be 10,000 kids out there right now who feel that they're really on top of it because they're seniors in Teaneck High. You know, you walk along. Yep. I'm the biggest guy in this place. I'm a senior. You look around. And they had the announcement about bids. You were supposed to, if you were a senior class member, pay your dues and you would get a bid for the prom, which also meant you could go to the senior banquet and which meant that you were allowed to come and applaud Dolores. Okay. And I get my bid, see, and I'm sitting in this, I'm sitting in the, in the, how many, you remember, how many of you remember your advisor and your advisory class, see? Old Miss Snyder sitting up there in the front. And the day we came in, it was about two weeks before the prom, Miss Snyder announces, she says, today we're going to pass out the bids. We're going to pass the bids out now, and I want you children to know I've seen thousands of children come through my class. And I want you to know this is an important thing, going to the prom. You'll remember it all of your life. You know, she was one of these gray-haired ladies who read Ivanhoe. You know, and she was constantly reading uh, Romeo and Juliet. And she was the head of the English department. And Miss Snyder is telling us that this is important. And she says, now, a lot of you are going to say, ah, I don't want to go to this. A lot of you are going to say, ah, this is just a dance. But it's very important. Remember this. And ahead of me, I could see Schwartz, who was anti-dance. Schwartz was a little human bowling ball. You know, the kind that sweats. 
His idea of a big afternoon was uh, grinding the valves on his Model A. And I could see him, see, and I said to him, I've been trying to get him to go because in, in my circle, we were all little Martys ourselves, see. In my circle, it would never occur to any of us to go to the prom alone with a girl unarmed. You know, alone. So I, ha I was trying to get Schwartz to go. So I kept saying, hey, Schwartz, hear what she's saying? It's important. Schwartz said, I'll knock it off. I said, well, Schwartz, there's only one prom in your life, Schwartz. And he turns to me and he says, ah, knock it off, will you? See, he's getting worried. I says, okay, Schwartz. When I go to the prom and five years later you come, they ask me how great the prom was, I'll say, forget it. It's none of your business. We sit there. And Miss Schneider begins to hand out the bids. They came in little envelopes. They were engraved. And it said, Mr. Gene Shepard is hereby invited to the senior class banquet and prom to be held at the Cherry Hills Country Club. The Cherry Hills Country Club. That's where I caddied. Now they're going to let me in the big house, see? You know, with the orange lights and the dance hall and all that bit. It's going to be held there, see? So I said to Schwartz, come on, Schwartz, come on, will you just do this favor for me? He says, how about a girl? I says, look, Schwartz. And I'm desperately thinking, see. I says, look, Schwartz, I'll ask Esther Jane Alberry to go to the prom with me, and I'll see if she's got a girlfriend. He says, do you think she'd go? I said, I think so, Schwartz. Let's try it. He says, oh, okay. And so that afternoon, see, I had a double weight on me. I am carrying Schwartz's future. I am carrying Schwartz's memory, see. I also had one of these romantic mothers who, about every two years, would look to me and say, do you realize you're living through the best years of your life? I'd say, oh, ma, shut up, will you? Gee whiz. You know, pimples are coming out best years of my life. You know, and all I could think of was, was Mr. Pittenger in algebra, and she's telling me the best years of my life. You know, I'm worrying. I can't understand quadratic equations. I'm going to flunk, and I got kicked in the head of the football practice. And she says, these are the best years of your life. My mother believed in proms, because she never went to one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just wonder how many of us right now, grown-up people in this room, are living lives directed largely by our parents at one point or another who never did what we're doing, and now they hate us for it. Oh, yeah, my old man was always after me to get an education. I'll never forget the first time I came home with a Latin book. And he says, what's that? I said, well, Dad, that's Latin grammar. He says, Latin grammar? Is that what they're teaching you in college? He thought they taught you in college on maybe how to design Oldsmobiles. You know, and it, 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 vaguely it began to bug him that I was going to school and I read books he didn't understand. I remember the time I brought home Ulysses and I left it on the table in the living room and the old man picked it up and he says, look at the...
It was a college book. See, all of his life he worshipped college. And look at the language. I mean, he always said, go to college. And it says, you know, you know what James Joyce always said, you know. He didn't even know the Irish talked like that, you know. He didn't know that. He, he had an idea. You know, a lot of people who in, in that area out there, they feel, they, they have vague ideas about laws that there is a law against guys writing this in a book. And he couldn't understand how I could have this, and it's obviously against the law, and the college gave it to me. And I remember sitting at supper with him, explaining to him who James Joyce was. And he says, now look, he says, if I ever came home with a book that had language like that, and my old man saw it, he would tan me to within an inch of my hide. And he sat there for a minute, and you know, it's funny when you see your own father collapse, you know, I can understand why Walt, why, why Arthur Miller wrote what he did, see. The old man turns and he looks at the icebox. This is the world he created for us. The icebox, the sink. He bought it, see. He created me, my kid brother. And now we're putting them down. And he turns to the icebox and he came out with one of his words under his breath. The kind of word that James Joyce would have had him arrested for. <laughs> yeah, you know, he's black guy. My mother says, Shh, the kids are listening. My old man says, kids. Yeah, they're kids, all right. And I'm sitting over there, I'm trying to smoke. I'm back from school, you know, my first semester, that whole bit. And so now it is the semester and the year before that I am still a stripling. My mother says, go to the prom. I want to go to the prom. And for a year and a half, the prom has been the one thing that's been hanging over the college like the golden fleece, like the golden apples of Jason. The prom. Go after it. It's like the elephant's graveyard. By the way, did any of you ever have a, a father who talked about the elephant's graveyard? There was a myth in, in Indiana that all the elephants went someplace and died. And nobody knew where it was. They had a secret graveyard. And they went there and they died and they left their ivory tusks there. My old man read a book once that said that. And all of his life he says, you know what I'm going to do one day? I'm going to save up. I'm going to take a trip to Africa and look for the elephant's graveyard. <laughs> Have you ever had a feeling you're living in a graveyard in New York? The cabs are out on strike. The guys that drive the diesel engines knock off because they can't have beer with their pizzas. <laughs> the president of the railroad is knocking them down. <laughs> what a call of you know? And, and I'm right out there tonight, some guy shooting at other people with a BB gun. Oh, what a city, you know. It's, a, it's certainly a summer festival, isn't it? I'll tell you. you. You bring your bulletproof Bible to town, you'll have fun here. Well, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. I, the, the night of the prom, I'll never forget it. It was announced that it was to be informal. Well, now, I don't know whether you know how the word formal dress hits Hammond, Indiana. 
I mean, their idea of formal dress really is pressed overalls. <laughs> I'm not kidding. It's a steel mill town, you know. <laughs> and on Sunday, a guy would take out his Sunday overalls and walk around, you know. And he... <laughs> I can remember guys with their Sunday safety shoes on, you know? <laughs> you know, they polish them, you know, they wear them. And you ought to see a guy with his Sunday blue work. Steel workers go to the beach. <laughs> that is worth a view, I'll tell you. You know, they see pictures of people at the beach and they're wearing sunglasses. And I saw a steel worker at the beach wearing his open hearth glasses. <laughs> yeah, he thought they were so, you know, he's walking, I can't see a thing, you know, he's walking. He'd look up at the sun once in a while to see if it's still up, you know. A steel worker, oh yeah, I, I remember going swimming. You know, it's funny, we here in the East, we don't realize what, what tremendous physical resources we've got. But I remember swimming in Lake Michigan. Now, when you think of Lake Michigan, what do you think of Lake Michigan? Yeah, you think, you know, the crystal blue water, the Indians, Hiawatha. <laughs> oh, you know, the whole bit, Apple Cheeks and Indiana and all that stuff. Let me tell you about Lake Michigan, friends. For those of you who complain about Rockaway Beach, let me tell you about Lake Michigan. Our idea of going swimming was to go down just past the Lieber Works plant. The Lieber Brothers people made soap, see? And they had on top of their plant a great big box of soap. Yeah, you remember that, Mel? That big box of soap? He's from the same area. They had this big box of soap, and it was painted on the side. It said, Rinso. That was it. And you knew it was summertime when they would change the paint on the Rinso sign. They get up there and they paint it green. See, it says Rinso. And right next to that was the Mazola plant. You know what Mazola is? That's that uh, cooking oil, a mazo. Well, you'd be surprised how it smells when they're making it. It does not smell like crisp donuts frying on TV. Here's the Mazo plant, see. Here's the Lever Brothers plant. Over here are 7,000 open hearts. And all of them, together and in concert, were spitting in the lake. They were throwing junk in there. The Amazo plant was throwing old used whale oil. So you would go in. And, and Lever Brothers would throw it. Have you ever taken a swim? Seriously, we would swim in the lake. And the detergent, waves of detergent would just... It was, it was worse than Salt Lake City. You couldn't... You could not sink. In fact, guys used to run, you know, they'd get back on the shore, see, and they'd run over to bust the tin cans, you know. They're jumping in, they jump in the lake and bounce. <laughs> you ever seen a guy bounce off the surface of the lake, all this mazolan, blast furnace crud, and we'd be floating there, see, the old man is floating, his two-piece bathing suit, he loved to float, see. It's the only guy I knew who could float with his straw hat on. He'd float there, you know, and he wears his glasses. And they, the detergent is washing over him. And then once in a while, a little mazola oil would go through his hair, down his nose, you know. Blast furnace dust would come down. He'd say, you know, ain't this the life of Riley? 
He really did, you know. You can imagine Riley out there swimming in the detergent, you know. You imagine Rockefeller in the detergent? <laughs> well, this is the kind of world we had. And, on, and the idea of formal wear, I mean formal wear, was completely unknown. It was totally unknown. We didn't even know where to get it. It was supposed to be formal. Now, my mother was sitting there that night, you know, and my dad says, I says, Dad, I got to go formal to this thing. He says, formal? He says, you can wear my suit. You should have seen my dad's suit. <laughs> my dad loved it because it was called forest green. And it had a thin yellow stripe. It had lapels that went out here, you know. <laughs> and he had padding that stuck out like this, you know. And that was his good suit. He says, well, you can wear my good suit. I says, no, Dad, it's formal. They, they, they tell me that you've got to get a formal... It's a tuxedo. He says, a tuxedo. My mother says, a tuxedo. <laughs> and she sat there, you know. All of her life, she had dreamed of going just one place with a guy in a tuxedo. She was of the Fred Astaire era. And... To her, the most fantastic magic in the world was to see Fred Astaire on top of a piano. You know, dancing away with this tuxedo and Ginger Rogers up there swinging around with him. And she says, you're going in a tuxedo. And I says, yeah. She says, oh, that's wonderful. She says, will you let me pick it out? I says, no, Ma, come on. You know, they're all going to rent these tuxedos. And that afternoon, I am at the place where you rent tuxedos. Boy, is that... This is something women have never known. Have you ever known that, women? I know you haven't. It's one of the most humiliating things in the world. To realize you got to go to this crummy little joint over the pool room. They're always rotten little places. They really... You can smell the fish coming up. And, but it's over the pool room. And they have this big tin sign... You've seen that tin sign over here on 6th Avenue? It's a guy with a, a tall silk hat. And underneath it, it says, Tuxes for rent. And you go up the stairs, and you can hear the dentist office. And now you're in this little place. I think this is one of the truly most humiliating moments to realize that you have to rent glory. Has it occurred to you that you're renting glory? You know, you've got to rent it. So I walk in there, I say to the guy, I'm going to the Hammond High, he says, that's all right, we've got the Hammond High number right here. There'd been 5,000 other kids, see. <laughs> they said, okay, we've got the Hammond High, they're all wearing this. And he goes back and he brings it out. Oh boy, it's white. I had never in my life put on a white coat. It's white. It's got a little boutonniere. <laughs> you know that little, that little maroon flower made out of, made out of uh, fuzz, you know? It's kind of, it's there, you see. And he says, do you want the midnight blue stripe or do you want the black silk stripe? I have midnight blue. He says, okay, let's try it on. I put it on. It's real tight around the hips, you know? Real tight, boy, and it pulls in. It's got little skinny pants. And he says, here, try the cummerbund. I says, cummerbund? 
somehow it sounded a little obscene. You know, I says, cummerbund? He says, yes, try it. He says, here, pull in your stomach. And he stretched it around here. You know, it's that, it's that silk band, and it's maroon. Comes around like that, see. I've got a shirt on that's got ruffles. Boy, what a feeling. It's got a little black stud sticking out of it. He puts the tie on. But there I stand, in my tennis shoes. <laughs> and there I stand in front of the mirror, you know, and I walk back and I look at it. Now I knew what life was about. It was that moment that I began to get bugged with Hammond, Indiana. You know, that brief instant. Pull my stomach in. Oh, what a feeling. That afternoon, I go home with this in a box. It's all wrapped up. They even include cufflinks. The whole thing, it rattles. See, take it home. Put it on the table. It's my old man's day off. My mother is there. My father says, can I see it? We open it up. I hold it up. White coat. And I could see that funny look in his eye. And he says, do you mind if I try it on? I said, no, go ahead, Dad. I was a little bit bigger than he was, see. Yeah, you know, all sons are a little bit bigger than their fathers. God help us in the year 3000. <laughs> and he takes my coat, see, and it's a little bit big, and he puts it on. It's a white coat. I swear this is the only time before and after in his entire life that he had on a tuxedo. He put it on. He stood there. We had one of these full-length mirrors, you know, in the closet. He looked at himself. Pretty spiffy. That is a word you never hear anymore. That's a daddy word. <laughs> it's pretty spiffy, huh? It's hot chop. <laughs> hot diggity dog. I said, Dad, you're going to rip the pants. Cut it out. He says, hot dog. We. <laughs> he starts to tap dance. He was a front of stereotype. I says, come on, Dad, take it off. He says, okay. He takes it off and he puts it back in the, in the box. His brief moment of glory. I tear out in the backyard and I start to polish my Ford. I had this Ford. Well, every one of us has a thing in our lives that's more important than any other thing. I had worked for two years solid to buy this little Ford Coupe, a convertible. I'd worked for years. It was mine. I had made every valve in it. Every copper pin in this car I knew intimately. I had spit on every valve spring to keep it from rattling. I had personally made that, that little gas gauge myself. Beautiful car, see. And I go out and I polish it all afternoon. It's shining. The interior is clean. And that night, I drove out. You know that great feeling when you're a kid? You got the top down on your car. It's warm out. You're in a white coat. A white coat, think of it. A ruffled shirt. You got that red flower. A cummerbund. You're driving your car. And it was baby blue. I had had it painted baby blue, and it just shone... It just gleamed, and I'm driving through the night. The stars. I'm going to the prom. 
I pick up Schwartz, and Schwartz comes down from his house. It was twilight, you know, that twilight moment of magic. Schwartz comes down in a white coat. He walks down. He looking kind of funny. He says, hey, Schwartz, you look good in a monkey suit. He says, ha, you do too. <laughs> we secretly knew we looked fantastic. <laughs> you know? So Schwartz sits next to me, and the two of us tool along. We get to Schwartz's girl's house. I toot the horn. Schwartz gets out. He goes up. And down the steps they come. He is with Helen. And she's got a, an evening gown on. A real evening gown. Schwartz has got her a corsage. How many of you remember the first corsage you ever bought? And how lousy it looked? Well... Here she comes with the corsage. She sits down back in the back with Schwartz, and I drive along, you know, the, sep the empty seat, Esther Jane. This is a thing. You know, it's funny. I think some people early in life develop a third eye, and they keep commenting on their life. Others never do. They just take it as it comes. They don't remember anything. And already at that age, I'm saying to myself, this is the greatest night of your life. It's the prom. This is it. We're going to the prom. This is your senior prom. You're graduating. Next week, you're out. This is the prom. This is it. And you can smell the catalpa trees. You can hear my valves knocking. You know, and you can hear that muffler going, bah, 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 the, my Hollywood muffler that I was so proud of, you know. Bah, 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 bah. We drive up in front of Esther's house. I get out. I go into the house. And I wait. She comes down the stairs. I'm in my white coat. Esther Jane is dressed in yellow. She's got this yellow dress. And I had sent her a purple corsage. <laughs> you ever seen a purple corsage with a yellow dress? She was like a, a human Christmas tree ornament, you know? And, and, and Esther Jane, I have to tell you, Esther Jane was kind of a fat girl. She was fat in the Judy Garland sense. You know, kind of round, you know, cuddly. And already she's sweating down through here, see? And, and I said, let's go, Esther. Come on, let's go, see? Let's go to the prom. And her mother says, have a good time. And her old man gives me that look, is this going to be the kid? Is this going to be the one? And he gives me that look. Bring her back at midnight right after the prom. Yeah. But, of course, you know, in our, in our world, it was traditional to stay out all night the night of the prom. You know that bit? Everybody after the prom, you go to this big party and all that stuff. And so now we are at the Cherry Hills Country Club. I drive up in front with my Ford. And believe it or not, a kid is there and says, Your car, sir? He's going to drive my Ford. I says, watch the clutch, Jack. I says, that baby will throw you right over the back seat. He says, oh, cool it, Jack. He was another kid, you know. He wasn't going to the prime. He was working. I says, knock it off, you nothing. He says, oh, okay, get in. I says, okay, wait. He gets in. Boom. I says, okay, smart guy. In we go into the prime. All right, now we're in the prom. Oh, what a moment. Oh, fantastic. Up there is Mickey Isley and his Mickey band. 
Oh, yeah, and they're playing away, you know. And, and hanging from the ceilings, they had these Japanese lanterns all over, you know. They were red and green, and they had a searchlight, you know, a spotlight that goes around. You're red and you're green and you're purple and you're blue. And up here it says, Senior Prom, Hammond High School. And it was all done in sequence with hanging. See, this is Hammond, Indiana splendor. I walk in, and, and, and of course, in the, in the middle are dotted the chaperones. Here was Miss Snyder, who's gone to 4,000 proms in her lifetime. You know, she's in her simple black. I had never seen her outside of school. And she's sitting over there, and she's with a man. You know, it's funny, when you see a teacher that you've known all of your life, this little teacher, and she's with a man. And he's, she, she's with this little gray man. And he kept nodding. He, you know, he kept falling asleep. And this is Miss Snyder's boyfriend, you know. Oh yeah, she says, Gene, I want you to meet my boyfriend, Mr. Stafford. You know, he keeps falling asleep. You know. It's somehow, you know, it's all Tennessee Williams. I can see the two of them. Thirty-eight years, they've been going steady. You know, they started when they were forty. See. And now here they are, they're watching proms all their life, you see. They're never going to get married, he doesn't believe, until his mother dies. She's 240, you know. Plays basketball every day. Poor old Mr. Stafford now is pushing 80, you know, and he keeps talking about mom. And Miss Snyder, of course, is living with her sister, Flora. And here, and she's jealous of Miss Snyder for going with Mr. Stafford, you know, the whole bit. And so here they're sitting by the side there, and the, the palms are all around them, and above it it says, Welcome, welcome Hammond High Seniors, the prom. And they're sitting there. What radio station is this, gang? And sitting next to him, this, this little old man, is Miss Norton. Now, if you've you got to know Miss Norton. Uh, every time I see that carborundum ad, the Norton Steel carborundum ad, I think of Miss Norton. Miss Norton was stainless steel. She had a steel-colored dress. She had two little steel marbles. And she was the entertainment chairman. And you can imagine what her entertainment, she, you know, she designed the punch. It was light Kokomo with a little Ovaltine in it, see? With some pop thrown in, that kind of thing, see? So here they're sitting, and the first thing, somehow, you know, it's funny how your, 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 your manners will work. I see Miss Snyder over there, and I've got Esther Jane. So we walk in. Immediately, I've got these dancing shoes on, which came with the tuxedo. Now, when you're used to wearing tennis shoes and safety shoes, suddenly dancing shoes, so I start skating across the floor. <laughs> gee, gee, how light your feet are, you know? You know, you put them, you know, those soft shoes on, you want to jump up and down. See? So we go across over to Miss Snyder, and I say, Miss Snyder, uh, this is Esther Jane. She looks up, says, pleased to meet you, Esther Jane. Uh, would both of you like to meet my boyfriend, Mr. Stafford? Her boyfriend. I said, 
Glad to meet you, Mr. Stafford. We shake hands, and this little claw grabs me, you know. He starts to snooze. And the band is playing. And now we were out on the floor, see. Me and Esther Jane. This is the first time I've ever held her close. And it took a prom to do it, see. And now here we are, see. We're dancing. And the band is going, da cha da cha 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 da da chee cha cha And here her, her ear is right here. And it's sweating. Yeah, you see. And Esther Jane has got a hold of me. And, and all the time there was a hair in my padding that was boring its way through my shoulder. And I'm going like this. Yeah, I just... Oh, it's just, I, I'm itching and I'm starting to sweat and my shorts are grabbing me and we're walking around. Oh, it's just pouring. And Esther turns to me and she says, isn't this nice? And I get this blast of red cabbage. You know, and, and then there's, she's wearing this perfume that everybody wore. It was a perfume that Woolworths sold called Radio Girl. It glowed in the dark, see? And I'm dancing around with this perfume, and it's making me sick, you know. It's coming up. And, and here is my beautiful corsage. Well, have you ever looked an orchid in right in the eye? It's got a big tongue. <laughs> ah, it's got it's a big purple tongue, you know. It's yellow and purple. It's got hair all over it. <laughs> and so help me God, that orchid is coughing, you know. And we're going around, <laughs> Esther Jane, you know, and it's, I keep saying to myself, this is the prom. <laughs> you remember this all of your life. And I said to Esther, I said, isn't this romantic, Esther? And she says, yes. Her girdle is grabbing her, you know. And I could feel it, you know, we're just going back. And the band just kept going on and on and on. And once in a while, Schwartz would float past. His eyes were red, you know. Schwartz never danced in his life, and now this chick's got a hold of his shoulder blade, you know, she's pulling him around. And occasionally, Flick would bob up out of the sea. Flick said, hi, Chef. And the band is going, cha-cha-cha-cha, on and on. And then all of a sudden, it just seemed like after 400 years, they start playing cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha-cha. It's all over. And we start going out. That's the problem. Mr. Jane is with me, and the orchid is sort of hanging down. And it goes, help, what's the way? Esther Jane is sweat all down the back, you know. And funny thing, somehow her mother talked her into wearing a pink slip. Have you ever seen a pink slip sweated through a yellow gown? She got this big red stripe down the back, you know. And I'm walking with her, you know. We get out, and, and we walk out, and it is raining cats and dogs. Oh, my God, it's just, boom, it's coming up. We've been in another world, you know, and now it's raining, and my top is down. Oh, oh I says, all right, wait a minute, Esther Jane. And there's poor old Schwartz is waiting with his chick. I says, I'll go get the car. So I plunge into the rain, you know, the hell, it's all over now anyway. The rain is coming down my white coat. 
Here's my Ford, up right up to the top water, see? I open the door, blue. I bail it out, I sit down, and I can see my red buttonhole flower is now melting, you know? The red stripe and my tie is hanging cockeyed and my suit, my cummerbund is grabbing. I drive up the front, I get him. They sit in the car. We go two blocks, when all of a sudden my left rear, boom! It's raining. Me and Flick get out and change the tire, and Swartz was center. Oh, he says, you and your crummy car, my old man would have let us the car, and you want to use yours. All right. Fifteen minutes later, we're in the Red Rooster. Now, there was a place that we all went to. How many of you know the place you go after the prom? Schwartz, myself, Helen, Esther Jane sit down, and it's our prom night. We're all melted and her flowers hanging down. And we're supposed to drink. We never drank. Three and a half minutes later and seven Cokes and rums later, I'm in the John. Schwartz is in the John. Both of us are... Ah! Ah! Esther Jane is in hers. Ah! And in the cold light of dawn, we draw up and you can see this stuff all over the front of my coat. She's got scrambled eggs on her. I said, okay, I'll see you, Esther. So long. Good prom, baby. And she staggers up into the darkness. Schwartz goes up into his darkness. And that night, I go into bed. And my mother's waiting up. And she says, how was the prom? And I says, Ma, it was wonderful. And to this day, my mother keeps saying to me, well, you were lucky. At least you had a prom in your life. Part animal, part bird, part your Aunt Emma, part something else, which uh, you're a little, little afraid of. Now, there are other birds. You know, we had, a, we had a thing out there called catching the snipe. Have you ever caught snipes? Well, catching a snipe is a standard operation. The snipe is a mythical... It's a real bird, but he's achieved almost mythicality. There are large numbers of people who don't believe there's such a thing as a snipe. But the snipe is a little running bird with a long beak. He is very bucked. This is an angry little son of a gun. He, he fits his name, Snipe. An angry little bird that runs in the bushes. And so about every two or three years... A kid would be talked into, and including me at one point, talked into going out into the swamp to hunt snipes. Now, how you hunt snipes is this way. You take a burlap sack, and you have it between your knees. You hold it between your knees. And you sit squatting down at the point where the guys who have taken your snipe hunting tell you to squat. It's a hype, by the way. And you squat down there up to your neck in mud and swamp water and swamp gas, and they say, we will herd the snipes into the bag. You hold the bag. That's where the term holding the bag comes from, from snipe hunting. If you're holding the bag on a snipe hunt, you are the patsy. And so you hold the burlap bag, and you, holler, you have to holler snipe three times because that is the mating call of the snipe. Oh, snipe, snipe, snipe. You're supposed to repeat that. You count five, and then you holler, Snipe, snipe, snipe! One, two, three, four, five. Snipe, snipe, snipe! 
You, you crouch down there holding this bag, and you wait for these little son of a guns to come running through the bushes, and they're supposed to come running through like a shot. you got to keep it at the ready. And then, boom, into the sack they go, because they think the sack is a hole in the ground, and they can hide in it. They hide in holes. I spent about four hours in a swamp at the temperature of 15 degrees above zero, one night with the wind howling out of the streets of Mackinac, howling, snipe, snipe, snipe! Snipe, snipe. I have been holding the bag in one way or another ever since. And don't think for a minute I don't know it. Well, one quiet spring afternoon, Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and I are out in the swamp looking... For, this is the time, you know, when the frogs are, are mating. This is the time when the tadpoles are coming into being out in the swamp. Right this minute. Right in the middle of April. And we would head out into the swamp to catch our spring supply of polywogs. Now, why we wanted polywogs, this is a mysticism I cannot go into at this point. But polywog hunting is very big among kids who live near swamps. And so we would go out to get our polywogs. These are young frogs, polywogs, see? And we're saning and Schwartz and icy water, you know, it's April, it's icy water in the swamp. You can see the cattails are just beginning to grow and the crows are howling up in the trees. And you could smell that, that humus, that, that moist, misty, swamp-like quality. We're out there with our, with our thing. And Schwartz is down at the far end of the seine, which we made out of sewed-together gunny sacks. We had taken potato sacks, gunny sacks, burlap bags, and we sewed about four of them together and made this big seine. And we're seining in the way. And Schwartz says, hey, what's that? What the heck is that? And standing in the far end of the swamp, the pool that we were working in was a mud hen. Mud hens are birds with secret sorrows. And they're gray. And they've got bloodshot eyes. And he's standing there in the shadows under a big clump of cattails just looking at us. He sees these four kids, Schwartz, Flick, Brunner, and Shepard, and we see him. And peeking out from behind the clump of rushes, was another mud hen. This one was audibly crying. The two of them. And Schwartz says, let's catch a mud hen. I says, mud hen? What are you talking about? Is that a mud hen? He says, yeah. It looked like some kind of a ghost of an elderly man that had passed into the great beyond. And they both looked at us for a moment. Flick looked at his. I looked at mine. Schwartz looked at all of them. And then suddenly, the two mud hens slowly started to walk up onto the land. They walked like old men at a picnic, like they were wearing Florsheim two-tone shoes and they weren't used to being in the water, and they were embarrassed. They walked and they looked back at us. Schwartz says, let's get them! And into the weeds they went. 